Reality Ventura. Good morning. It's been a hot minute, like 10 years. <laughs> I got a, man, I forgot how wild this church was. I'm already losing my voice from the earlier service, so I got to pace myself for this one. Uh, but I recognize a lot of faces in the building. Some of you I don't know if you're like, who's that guy up on the stage? Uh, I'm Chris. And years ago, I had the uh, joy, dropping stuff already, had the joy and privilege of just being a participant in the move of God here in the city of Ventura that is this church, uh, and just just getting to see what God is doing in the city years ago and is still continuing to do. And uh, years into that, uh, Reality planted a church in Santa Barbara. A year into that plant, I took that church over, and that's where I've been ever since. Uh, and uh, a few months ago, we had Dominic Bally actually at our church in Santa Barbara, uh, not only to preach, but also just to give some updates because we wanted to know how our, our sibling, our older sibling was in Ventura. And so he shared just some of the things that God was doing here just as a way to kind of connect us, uh, just since we don't often see each other. And so he asked me to do the same as well. Uh, I've been at Reality Santa Barbara. We meet there in a high school theater uh, right there under the Santa Barbara Bowl. I've been there for about seven years, and just to be honest, most of those seven years have been tumultuous, full of transition and change. I don't know if you guys know about change and transition, but uh, that's kind of our story. Just kidding. That's our story up, up north. Uh, but by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and by, by a bunch of people who are just longing for revival in their city, uh, God has sustained us, and I'd say that the last two years have been some of the best of our life. And uh, we're just just seeking after, just simply seeking after an outpouring of God's spirit, looking at things like uh, what does it mean to uh, be a disciple in the city of Santa Barbara? What does it mean to develop leaders? Uh, and that's just a, kind of a 30-second update on our life in Santa Barbara. But I am really excited uh, to be able to start this Advent series with you. What I wanted to do... Uh, as some of the, the speakers and preachers over the next month will be going into detail into some of those themes that you're used to hearing, what I want to do is start a little bit broad to give us a little platform upon which to launch into Advent. So if you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. understand you all went through this uh, some time back. We're just going to focus in on two verses and really just a couple phrases in these two verses that I just kind of want to ring out until it, uh, uh, till it saturates uh, some of our thirsty hearts and souls. Our, our verses in chapter 1 will be Ephesians 1, verse 9 and 10. But since this is a big run-on sentence, let's start in verse 7. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 through verse 10. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, In him we have redemption, speaking of Jesus, in Christ we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Here's our text for the morning. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Somebody say amen. That's the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we just want to come before you in the name of Jesus, uh, remembering the Apostle Peter who said that we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. We have everything we need 
right here in your word, in your spirit, in your presence, and in this body, the church. And so we're asking today that in the minutes that we have together as a church, uh, as believers, brothers and sisters, you would activate our hearts and minds to be aware of the presence and power of Jesus Christ, alive and well, in our midst, uh, shaking the earth and, and, and expanding the kingdom. And may you show us today just a little bit about what that means for us and how we can jump in uh, to what you're doing right in front of us. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2009, September of 2009, an author by the name of Simon Sinek delivered an 18-minute TED Talk that would go on to become the third most viewed speech of its kind. Today, clocking in at 47 million views, he briefly spoke about what sets great leaders apart from others. Great leaders, great companies, great businesses, what sets the great ones apart? And so he'd bring up examples. Why is Apple uh, dominating an industry when there's other computer and software uh, programmers with the same amount of resources, the same people, the same engineers, the same opportunities? Why, uh, for example, did Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, launch the civil rights movement when there were other people with voices who also experienced oppression? Why was it the Wright brothers who launched a plane into the sky when there were arguably other people, more resourced, more funded, uh, more popular, uh, with more stuff at their disposal who wanted to do the same thing? And his answer in just about 18 minutes was, if you look at all of the great leaders, all of those great companies, all of those great movements, the difference is that everybody has a what behind them. Not everybody has a why Everybody has a what they're doing, not everybody has a why, or if I could rephrase it this way, everyone has a plan. Not everybody has a purpose behind that plan. The title of my sermon today is The Why Behind Christmas, and not just Christmas, but everything else in your life. The why behind everything else. To truly find meaning and significance, we often have to move past the detailed nature of our plans and find our purpose. And it's the same with everything in our lives. It's certainly true when we start to uh, uh, reach the precipice of Christmas, December 1st. That's today. And December 1st marks a lot of things for a lot of people, a lot of great emotions, a lot of warm feelings, a lot of uh, memories of past stuff, but it also kindles a lot of bad stuff as well. December 1st triggers an avalanche of feelings. And for some of us, it's good. For some of us, it's bad. For some of us, it's a mixture of all of those things. And perhaps halfway through December, you'll start asking the question you might have been asking year after year after year. Why are we doing all of this? So you put up the lights and you put the turkey in the oven and you made and write those cards and you start going to worship nights and you start doing church activities and December gets busier and busier And maybe for some of you, that busyness is exacerbated by a sense of grief and loss that often comes with the holidays. And you're asking yourself, why? The lights, the carols, the church stuff, the nativity scene, the family. And listen, the details and the plans that we make aren't bad. Most of those things are good. But sometimes we can get inundated by our plans, by our details, and lose sight of the important picture. 
The plans themselves aren't bad. In fact, that's my first point today, is that God has a plan. In fact, we see that in our uh, text today, in verse 9 and 10, where Paul says, God was making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, listen to this, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. God has a plan. And if you look at verse 7, you see that what God's plan is with Christ is the redemption of people, the forgiveness of sin, the shedding of his blood. God has a plan. And for the next four weeks, we're going to start looking at the details, just, just waiting in the water of God's plan in this thing we call Advent, the launch into Christmas. We'll talk about the incarnation. We'll talk about Jesus coming uh, from a, 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 a mother who is a virgin. We'll talk about his sinless life, all of those things, his death and his resurrection and what that means for us. God has a plan, and his plan is full of incredible details. And your life might be full of some details right now as well. And some of those are good. The details, the decisions, the action points that we're putting together right now as our minds are spinning. In fact, some of them might have a spiritual nature. You're in a church right now, so you might be thinking, I need to love my neighbor. Those are good details. You might be thinking about baby Jesus in a manger, the incarnation. But there's also some details that are less positive. It's often the details in our lives that we can get hung up on. Kind of that decision fatigue. Should I do this or should I do that? We don't just get hung up on details, but it's often details where cold religiosity starts to happen. Well, I guess I should go to church today. I guess I should roll into home group today, to community groups, whereas years prior... It was a white-hot flame of your love for God that drove you to some of these places. You might be asking yourself now, why am I doing this? In fact, details are also where we can sometimes find ourselves burnt out, tired, worn out, over it, overwhelmed. And we're not just saying, I guess I'll go, I guess I'll do this, but why am I doing this to begin with? And see, God doesn't just have a plan. He has a purpose too. That's my second point. If my first point is God has a plan, my second point is God's purpose drives God's plans. In fact, in verse 9, Paul tells us exactly this when he says that he was making known to us the mystery of his will, listen to this, according to his purpose. God has a why. According to his purpose, with which he set forth in Christ as a plan. God has a purpose, and that purpose fuels all of his plans. Thousands, hundreds of things in the Bible that he says, that he enjoys, that he does, that he doesn't like, that he doesn't do. And you might be finding yourself inundated by all that information saying, what's the point of all of this? God has a purpose that drives all of his plans. It fuels every single thing that he does. And the reason I want to bring this up this morning is because if we could wrap our hearts around God's eternal purpose, it might fuel our motivation as well. I have uh, two kids, Jude and Abby, like the Beatles songs, if that helps. And they're about five years old and seven years old, and they're right in that age where they are, asking me the question, why, Dad? Like thousands of times a day. And it doesn't matter what it is. Like, don't touch that chainsaw, Jude. Why not? 
Why? 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 And there's some times in my life where I just want to be like, because I'm your dad, you know? But in my best, more spiritual moments, I get down on a knee and I explain to him the why behind what we're doing, because you'll lose your finger, right? Hold my hand in the parking lot, because there's cars. And something clicks in his mind and he's like, cool. There's something in the human heart that sometimes wants to know the purpose behind stuff. Have you ever felt motivated by a bigger purpose than your own? Have you ever felt like you are part of something bigger than just your life? There's a, an old unverified story of an unannounced visit that President uh, JFK uh, made to the Space Center at Cape Canaveral in the 1960s. And as Kennedy was touring the complex, he met a man in janitor's clothing and walked up to the man and he said, what is it that you do here? And the man replied, I earn a living. And Kennedy nodded and he moved on to the next person. There he met another man in janitor's clothing and asked him the same question. He said, what do you do here? And the man replied, I pick up all the trash. Kennedy grinned and walked on until he met yet another man in the same outfit and asked the question once again. This time, a big smile grew across the man's face as he puffed his chest out just a little bit and replied, Mr. President, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. Have you ever felt like you were a part of something bigger than the details or the plans that you were accomplishing in that moment? What is it that can cause someone to push a broom in a warehouse and still feel a sense of significance? I'll tell you. They feel like they're a part of something bigger than the broom pushing. God's purpose drives God's plans. And if we could wrap our minds around God's purpose, perhaps it would motivate us in the mundane and ordinary and sometimes difficult things in our own lives as well. Paul gives us what God's purpose is in a single phrase. You ready for it? Verse 10. It is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That is God's driving heartbeat in the cosmos. Paul says God's, God has, a, a, according to his purpose, uh, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, is to unite all things in him. Everything in heaven and everything on earth. That is God's heartbeat. That means in all the details, in all the commands, in all of his law, in all of his exhortations, in everything that the Bible says, in everything that we're called to, all of it flows out of a heart of a God who wants to unite everything in his son, Jesus Christ. That word unite is very peculiar. It comes from the Greek word anakafala'o. You try it. Anakafala'o. Go. Ah, nice. Did a lot better than the first service. That's awesome. That word is often translated in our Bibles as simply unite, but its literal meaning is to sum up. It's to sum up. Uh, it comes from an old ancient practice of Greek oratory where people would take the stage in Greek culture and they would go on for hours just, uh, in debate, arguing point after point, complex points after points, and at the end of their speech, they would anakafala'ao, or they would sum up their entire argument. They would take everything that it amassed, everything that it amounted to, and they would condense it in a single sentence. Uh, 
Paul actually does this in Romans chapter 13, verse 9. He says, for the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are anakafala'ao, or summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see what Paul's doing? He said right there in Romans chapter 13, everything in the Old Testament can be condensed into a, uh, condensed into a single sentence that you're supposed to love your neighbor. And Paul then takes that word and he applies it in Ephesians to what God is doing all around us. Have you ever known someone who can take just like, just say what needs to be said in like one or two words? Can take what someone, uh, have you, well, maybe a better way to put it is, have you ever met someone who takes like 30 to 40 minutes to say something very simple? This guy. And then someone else comes along in like a closing prayer and they say all of it in like five seconds. And you're like, oh, that makes so much sense. This is what Paul is saying God does, but not just with our words, with the entire universe. Paul's saying God's passionate heartbeat is to take everything in the cosmos and unite them, sum them up, condense them in his son, Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that is God's purpose, is to bring order to everything that doesn't have order. And that's good news for you and me. It's good news on a broad scale. It's good news for creation. How many of you have ever been frustrated at work? Things don't work. Like you read in Genesis, the ground it is not able to be plowed. I feel the thorns. I feel the tears. And yet Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Romans tells us that there's coming a day when he will set the cosmos free from its bondage to decay. Examples of everything that God is ordering, one of them is creation. Another is institutions, those things that we can't control that are bigger than us. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14 where it says that Jesus himself is our peace who himself was, uh, made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's even doing something about those things. But just to bring it down to a personal relational level, he's also uh, reordering our relationships. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. Paul says, it's from him that the whole body, that's you, is being joined and held together by every supporting ligament, growing and building itself up in love as each part does its work. Paul right there is saying, not only is God taking people who don't always seem to get along and putting them together, but he's, he's moving way past tolerance, and he's actually making it in such a way that people are building and nourishing one another up. God reordering all things from creation to institutions to relationships. But for those of you that are wondering, like, I can't, even, I can't even think about all of those things. I got my own life to deal with. I'm thinking about Monday morning, and that's going to be enough. God's in the business of restoring you too. I love that line in Psalm 23 where it just says simply, he restores my soul. He restores your soul. That might not make a lot of sense to you if you, like me, uh, got most of your theology growing up from Looney Tunes. And if you remember that scene where the wily e. coyote uh, dies trying to chase a roadrunner and it's either a cliff or an anvil, right? 
But whenever he dies, you see this disembodied like spirit come out of him. And that's what most of modern culture thinks of when we think of a soul. Some invisible part somewhere in here that we don't know a lot about that, that disappears when we die and we'll come back when, you know, in the sweet by and by. But that is not the Hebrew thought behind soul. The word for soul uh, to the Hebrews was nephesh. And it wasn't speaking about some part of you. Like you don't have a soul. You are a soul. The soul, the nephesh, referred to the whole person. So when we speak about someone's soul, we're speaking about everything that makes you who you are. Your mind, your heart, your relationships, your habits, your decision-making, your willpower, everything that makes you you, from your thought life to your emotions, everything. So when the psalmist says, God restores my soul, he's not saying someday when you die, you know, your disembodied spirit will come back and give you life. He's saying there's coming a point where God will make all of you work together in harmony. That's good news for some people whose lives are falling apart. Some of you need to hear that today because you need to be put back together. Your soul is disintegrated. I love the the words of Dallas Willard who described the soul as the uh, operating system of the human personality. You don't always know that it's there until it stops working. When your mind starts going crazy, when your body starts getting decayed, when you get older and things don't work the way that they're supposed to anymore, when your kids are wayward, when your marriage is on the rocks, when stuff doesn't work the way it was intended to work, the soul is disintegrating. And the good news for some of you in this room is that God is the one who restores your soul. In fact, I love the response of the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 175, where he says, Let me, nephesh, let my soul live that I may praise you. Let everything in me, my whole being, give back honor and worship and praise to the one who restores it and brings shalom and peace and wholeness to that which was torn apart. Anybody in here who's been torn apart, this is good news for you. In fact, some of you might have gone through so much in this life that you just have a hard time imagining that God can put some of these things back together. You've been through so much violence, discouragement, disillusionment, sickness, ailments, loss, grief, that it is hard for you to wrap your mind uh, around, let uh, let alone the, the big things in the world relationships and the creation and institution, you're like, how can God make a, how can God bring redemption to the mess that I've created? For some of you, you're like minute at a time. I'm just taking, I'm just Monday. That's all I got in front of me. And I, I can barely handle my Monday, much less everything else after that, much less people in my life, much less being involved in a church. How can God do this? I want to give you the good news of how God can do this. Perhaps uh, starting with a story. I love mayonnaise. Like, I love it. It's my spiritual gift. Not making it, just eating it. But it turns out mayonnaise is, is pretty complex. Like, it is a chemical anomaly. Did you know this? I, I've been reading up on this because I love mayonnaise so much. It turns out mayonnaise is actually really complex. It's, it involves liquids that aren't, they're not supposed to go together, like oil and water. 
you ever put oil and water in a jug and try to get them to, to mix and it doesn't work? And yet throughout supermarkets across the country, lining my fridge is perfect mayonnaise. Thank God. Sign that Jesus is alive. <laughs> How do you get two things that don't, get, that don't fit together to all of a sudden come together? Well, it turns out in my vast uh, Wikipedia research that you need something called an emulsifier. In this case, it's an egg. But more than that, an emulsifier is something that is able, it's the greatest thing to happen to food since my stomach. But it is able to take two things that do not seem to fit together and not only bring them together, but create something new and beautiful out of their togetherness that was not previously possible. An emulsifier. Something that is able to take two broken things that don't go together and not only bring them together, but create something better than where they were by themselves. I got a sermon to preach to somebody at Reality Ventura this morning because there's some people in this room whose lives have been falling apart. Marriages falling apart. Children falling apart. Careers falling apart. Your five-year plan has been falling apart. Your health has been falling apart. And you are currently asking yourself this question in this room. First, your first question is, why am I still in this church? The second question you're asking is, how can God bring this all together? And my good news, the gospel message for you is that there is a divine emulsifier in your life. Jesus Christ, who is able, listen, to take things that don't seem to go together and not just bring them together in harmony, but create something vastly more beautiful than what you had to begin with. Jesus Christ can bring your life together. Jesus, li uh, Jesus Christ can hold your life together. What you got going on in your life? What you got? I dare you to challenge me with it. I dare you to challenge the good news. The good news of the gospel is that God sent his son, not just for the carols, not just for the presents, and not just for the songs. He sent his son to unite all things in himself. What in your life is falling apart? I promise you God can keep your life together. I promise you Christ can put your life together. I promise he can deal with anything you got. What you got going on in your life? Try me right now. You might be feeling deflated this morning. The Bible says Jesus fills you up. You might feel down this morning. The Bible says Jesus raises you up. When you're dejected, the Bible says Jesus is your inexpressible joy. When you're weak, Jesus makes you strong. When you're falling apart, Jesus restores you. When you're faithless, Jesus is faithful. When you don't know what to believe, Jesus is true. When you're about to give up, Jesus keeps your feet from stumbling. When you are passed over for promotion, Jesus still chose you. When your spouse leaves you, Jesus says, I never will. When no one wanted you around, Jesus says, follow me. Can I get an amen from somebody in this church? When you feel stupid, Jesus is your wisdom. When you feel unworthy, Jesus is your righteousness. When you feel dirty, Jesus is your sanctification. When you're thirsty, Jesus is rivers of living water. When you're hungry, Jesus is the bread of life. When you're out of your mind, Jesus is the peace that surpasses the understanding of your mind. When you're feeling discouraged, Jesus is your comfort. When your wallet is empty, Jesus is your shepherd you shall not want. When your career is falling apart, Jesus keeps your confidence together. When your health is failing, Jesus renews your strength. When your youth is fading, Jesus renews your inner being. When your heart is broken, Jesus dwells in your heart through faith. When you're a work in progress, Jesus 
he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring you to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus. Come on. What else you got? Well, I'll keep going then. When times are uncertain, Jesus is your assurance. When times are unstable, Jesus is the rock. When times are insecure, Jesus is your refuge. When you've lost your sense of why, Jesus is your reason. Is this a sermon for somebody this afternoon? When you, can't, when you don't know where to go, Jesus is the way. When you can't find your way, Jesus is the light. When you don't know how to get there, Jesus is the door. When you don't know who to trust, Jesus is the truth. When you don't know what to do, Jesus says, learn from me. When you say, but I don't want to get hurt. Jesus says, I'm gentle at heart. When you say, but I'm tired, Lord, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. When you say, but I'm afraid, Jesus says, take courage. And when it feels like everything is falling apart, Jesus can hold it all together by the word of his power. Jesus can hold your life together. And if he can hold the universe and the cosmos together, if that's his driving purpose, he can certainly handle your Monday. Now, you might be asking, why are we talking about God's grand purpose and these cosmic realities? I've got practical things to do. I mean, that's cool. The universe. But, like, I got bills. Why spend so much time just riffing on cosmic realities when I've got practical steps right in front of me that I can barely handle. I've got holiday blues. I've got bills to pay. Don't know if I'm going to have a job next week. I've got family drama, presents to wrap, house to clean, carols to sing. Got half my, most of my family coming over the holidays. Can't stand half of them. What am I going to do? You're like, that's when it comes down to it, theology doesn't matter unless it affects the normal, ordinary, and mundane of our lives. And some of you are asking that right now. How does it affect that? What's great about this, but what about that? And why do we need to know about this large overarching purpose? And this is why, brothers and sisters. Because without a large framework directing why, you do what you do, wake up in the morning, come to church, you're involved, do all of the things that you're supposed to do. Without that large framework directing why you're doing it, you can easily get lost in the mess. Without a purpose, you can get lost in the plans. Without a destination, you can get lost in the details. So much research, uh, research has shown that not having a sense of purpose is one of the most highly discouraging things a person can face at work. Why am I doing this? You find yourself pushing buttons, not knowing why you're pushing the button, or talking to people, not knowing why you're supposed to talk to people, putting out fires, cleaning out messes day after day, week after week, year after year. You do the same thing at your house uh, in all of these different areas, asking why, pushing buttons, why, why, why. And yet, somebody can push a broom in a giant warehouse and feel like what they're doing is attached to a larger overarching purpose, and for them, that will change their perspective. I'm not just sweeping the floor, helping to put a man on the moon. The reason that we need a larger meaning and a significance and a purpose in our lives is because God designed you that way. 
book of Ecclesiastes tells us that we were hardwired with eternity in our hearts. Acts chapter 17 says that no matter where you wander, and you wander, you'll come up short until you seek after, search for, and find God. You were hardwired. Your software was made needing God to occupy that space. Which means, and what we expect is that no matter what temporal things we occupy that space with, whether it's career or relationships or personal autonomy and freedom, it will never satisfy your hard wiring until you are filled with the presence of God. No wonder Paul ended one of his prayers saying, I pray that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. You were wired this way with a big eternal spiritual capacity to be filled by a big eternal spiritual God. So that leads me to my third and final point. Shortest sermon of my life. Records. My third point, and just to recap, first point was God has a plan, just like we do. Second point, God's purpose drives God's plan. And here's my third point. Identity is formed when God's purpose drives your plans. Identity is best formed when God's purpose starts to drive your plans. You don't have to come up with a purpose today. God's got a big enough one for you. He's uniting all things in his son, Jesus Christ, and everything that he's about is to the end goal of that. God has a why, and not just for the universe, but for you. And that's why every December we pause. We slow down from the normal routines and pause to remember and celebrate this thing called Advent, the arrival of the Son of God, that he came was a sinless son of God, born in the flesh of a virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, did incredible miracles, taught, spoke, lived out the love and law of God, died on the cross, rose from the dead. But all of that comes from a certain place in the corner of God's heart. His end goal of bringing everything that Jesus walked into and putting it back together in him. So this isn't much just just a tradition, so much as it is a deeply meaningful reminder, this thing that we do in December, that we need to reorient our perspective. And not just in Advent, right? In January too. In February, March. To pause and to slow down and to recalibrate and redirect and re-aim our attention and our affections to Jesus Christ. And to see his uniting of all things in the small things that we're going through and the unpleasant things alike. And that's where it gets really hard. Because our hearts can sometimes get so cluttered with anxiety and worry and anger and to-do lists. And even good things like church activity and spirituality. And before you know it, halfway through December, your heart is too full. The great uh, 21st century theologian Winnie the Pooh once said, (laughs) it's often the smallest things in life that take the most room in our hearts. And ain't that the truth? So for this reason, we introduce Advent. 
where we are taking very seriously the lyric of that Christmas carol that says, let every heart prepare him room. I'm going to ask uh, Brian and the rest of the team to come up here so that we have an opportunity to do that together, to prepare him room. You might be asking yourself, how do you do that? How do you start? What's my first step? And if the, if the idea is that God is already active and, and working and moving, and he is, right? The problem isn't God's movement and his activity. The problem is most often my unawareness that he's working in my midst, and so that's part of our next step forward, just in this worship gathering together, is to ask the Lord to develop our awareness of his presence in our midst. And that might for you be as simple as asking different questions than you've been asking. What I want you to do is to think of that one situation in your life, the hard one. You know what I'm talking about? That one relationship that you could do without that's just keeping you up at night that challenge or season of suffering or setback or disappointment or disillusionment. And I want you to reflect on it today as we sing and worship, but not the way perhaps that you've done in the past. Maybe in the past, you've reflected on those situations like I have, saying, God, what, why are you doing this to me? What I want you to do for the remainder of our time together is to reframe that question slightly. From God, why are you doing this to me? To God, what are you doing in me? From, why are we asking that? From this anchor point that says, God is uniting all things in himself, even when I can't see the effects of it. What that means is, no matter what you're going through, he is working and he is present. Your circumstances might change, but his worth never changes. Your environment might be changing right now, but God is always faithful. And even in the most bleak moments in your life, God's throbbing heart of love and his grand purpose is at work on your behalf. And so part of our worshipful response today is to be aware of that. And as we become aware by asking the question, God, what are you doing in me right now? What do you want to do in me this month? To then turn back because he's going to speak to you turn back his response to praise and to give him the honor and the glory and the wonder that is due his holy name. Amen. Jesus Christ, have your way in this church as you have been faithful to do for, for years. And start with each of us individually as you speak to our hearts and you restore our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. There's carpets at the front for those of you that want to kneel and carve out some solitude. There's bread and the cup to both sides of the stage. And when you take that, if you're a believer, you, you dunk the bread in the cup. And what you're doing, Paul says, is you are proclaiming God's purpose, his why, until the day he comes, his death and his resurrection. It's a way of renewing our faith in him. There's prayer teams. You can see to the right and to the left. For some of you, you're going through so much, you don't even have the words to, to spill out before God. Let us pray for you. There's some chains that need to be broken this morning. Let us pray for those chains to fall off in the name of Jesus. And as they fall, let's return that in praise and worship. In Jesus' name.